couple of announcements. Uh, tonight is the last night that the mission team uh, that Jeff Phipps is uh, working with down in Brazil with Disciple Makers Multiplied is uh, operating. So this is the last night of their conference. So we need to pray for his safe return and that they'll have some good uh, long-term fruit from this. Also remember there will not be Bible class this Thursday night because it is Thanksgiving. Also children, any of your children in uh, whatever age up through high school interested in uh, singing with the group for the Christmas lunch on December 11th to contact Mark Reisinger or James Bagg for details. And then there will not be Bible class on Tuesday night, de- December the, the 6th, which is two weeks from tonight because we'll be at the pre-trib rapture study group meeting uh, in, uh, in Dallas. Um, also a reminder, there will be um, other sign-up sheets in the back to bring desserts and sides for the Christmas lunch on December 11th at following church. And then we'll have communion twice on um, in December, the second week, and then on Christmas morning. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we always have a few moments of silent prayer so that everyone can make sure that they are spiritually prepared. Scripture teaches that we are to walk by means of the Spirit. When we are no longer walking by the Spirit, but according to the sin nature, we're walking in darkness rather than light. We're no longer abiding with Christ. And recovery is through confession of sin. So we give everyone the opportunity to make sure they're spiritually prepared through the use of 1 John 1.9. Afterwards, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this opportunity we have as believers to gather together to encourage one another by our presence and by the study of your word, that we might focus upon that which you uh, have revealed to us, that God the Holy Spirit can use it to train us, to focus upon you, and to uh, face the circumstances and the difficulties and the challenges and tests of life uh, through your word. And we have these patterns laid out for us, especially in, in the Psalms. And as we continue our study in Psalm 59 tonight, we pray that you would challenge each of us with, with the way in which David brings his uh, petition and his uh, needs before you and his confidence that he expresses in your uh, provision that will give him victory over the circumstances, whether whether he would see them in his time or not. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, as we go through Samuel, last week, um, a couple of weeks ago, we went through First uh, Samuel chapter 19, where Saul has sent his execution squads to David's home to wait outside the house in order to capture him, kill him uh, when he comes home or when he left the house. And 
during that time, David penned a psalm. This is the first psalm that we have studied as we go through First Samuel, but that'll be the process as we'll study the uh, uh, 12 uh, psalms or so that David wrote in context. So what I have entitled this, because we spent the last two weeks in Psalm 59, is last week we looked at the fact that the basic theme is God is our safe space, just to make it contemporary. <laughs> just to make it contemporary, because he is. I mean, that's what this is all about. He is our defense. He's our high towers, his refuge. I mean, again and again and again in the Psalms, that's what we get. And as I pointed out last time, I think this is a great tool to use when we are talking with those who are uh, younger and those who are concerned about these things. We have to figure out where we're going to hit points of commonality in communicating to um, to those who don't know the Lord, don't have hope. They're scared to death at every little thing because they don't have any, they've never been taught anything on how to really find stability in life uh, on the basis of uh, the Word of God. They've never heard about it. They don't know any, anything about it. And what we learn is that stability only comes from the Word of God. Now, Part of the problem that David faces is injustice, and there's a lot of different kinds of injustice in the world because the world is the devil's system. We can have injustice in terms of personal relationships. We can face injustice due to systems. We can face injustice due to people who are in authority who are uh, evil or wicked. Uh, We can face injustice within families where you have people who are uh, abusive or hostile Uh, just a whole variety of different kinds of circumstances. And so we cry out to God for justice, much like uh, in Psalm um, uh, Psalm 73, where you have the question frequently asked, not only there but other places, how long, O Lord, will the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? I mean, we see that also as part of the theme in Psalm 37. And it seems at times when we look around that God must be asleep at the switch somewhere um, because you have minor injustices to massive injustices, for example, the Holocaust. And I know in talking to a number of my Jewish friends that that they just can't get a handle on the sovereignty of God or the providence of God that would allow something of that magnitude Uh, to take place. And those are significant intellectual stumbling blocks that people have to uh, believing and trusting in God. And so we have to learn to talk people through these things, asking the right questions, getting them to think through those those situations. So really in the uh, rest of the psalm, we covered the first five verses last time, and the rest of the psalm, we see David's attitude, his focus on God and his power and his confidence that God will bring justice one way or another. So I've titled this this lesson for the rest of the psalm, God's Justice. It's his time, his place, and his punishment. God in his omniscience knows just what the right punishment will be. He knows all the fact, all the factors. And so when you think somebody is getting away with it, we have to know, understand they're not. They may get away with it today. They may get away with it next week, next year, five years, ten years, maybe this life. But ultimately, a reckoning will come. Even if they're a believer, there will be uh, 
problems at the judgment seat of Christ for such people. Not that they are will lose their salvation, but they will lose rewards, and there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ, according to 1 John 4. So uh, God chooses the time. He knows the best time. You don't. I don't. We wish it was a time when we could see it, don't we? We want to be a fly on the wall, and we want to watch it. Uh, but he knows the right time. He knows the right place. And he knows uh, the right punishment. So we just have to do what David does here and what David does in uh, Psalm, 50, uh, uh, Psalm 37, and that is we just put it in the Lord's hands. And that's what it talks about. We're covering that also in First Peter on Thursday night. So I pointed that there are... There are these various types of psalms, and this is a lament psalm. It's clearly a lament psalm. It has the characteristics of a lament psalm. It's the expression of a complaint or distress or distressful situation, and, um, but it's more than simply an individual crying out for problems. David recognizes that there are parallels to the national condition. He makes application there. Now, we looked at these. I'm not going to go through this again as I have the last two lessons, but there's three sections that stand out here. There is a petition section, a prayer section, where he's petitioning God to to, uh, intervene in his circumstances. And there is a confidence section where he expresses his trust to God. So we have his petition. We have his expression of trust. We also have a lament section, but the order is a little bit different from what I have here. It's petition, lament, and trust. You have those three elements in the first ten verses, and then in the next seven verses, you have them repeat those sections repeated again. So it's a little bit different kind of structure here. Uh, one writer, Van Gemmeren, his commentary on the on the Psalms, puts uh, a structures part of it this way, showing that it is based on a chiasm, which takes our focus to the center part of the of the Psalm. The end of the first section in verses six to eight focuses on the wicked and then on God, and then in verses 9 to 10, it focuses on God, uh, God's deliverance, and ending in verse 10, my, my, my God of mercy. It should be translated better, my God of faithful love or loving kindness. It's the Hebrew word chesed, meaning uh, covenant loyal love. My God of uh, mercy shall come to meet me. In other words, he will anticipate my needs and provide for me, and he will let me uh, see uh, what happens on my enemies. That's the end of verse uh, verse 10. Now, David could say that because David's in a unique situation. We can't say that because uh, he knew that he would be anointed king because God had promised him. So he knew he wasn't going to die. We don't know what the what's going to intervene or what's going to happen in our own circumstances. Now, I went through... Um, Structuring the outline a little differently, we got two sections here in terms of an outline. The first 10 verses are basically going to be repeated in terms of their structure in the second section, which is verses 11 through 17. So we can summarize the first part as David expressing his confidence that God will always deliver his people from those who treat them unjustly. Justice will prevail either now in time or in eternity. There will be a payday, as R.G. Lee famously preached in a well-known sermon back in the early part of the 20th century called Payday Someday. 
God will deal with things. We just have to trust him. That's the issue. We just put it into God's hands. Once again, 1 Peter 5, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. The thing is that as David faces a situation where he's surrounded by his enemies, they're plotting against him, they're spreading tales against him, they're libeling him, slandering him, they are uh, telling all of these uh, things about him, and they are uh, surrounding the house in ambush to take, capture him and take his life. Uh, from a human perspective, things don't look good. And many times in our lives, things don't look good. But we have to get our attention off of the people, off of the circumstances, off of the situations, and put our focus back on the Lord. Now, that's easier said than done. It doesn't happen in an instant. That's why I keep saying we have to train ourselves in the small things because when the big things come, we need to already have those those methodologies in place where we've trained ourselves to cast our care upon him. If you learn to do it in the small things, then when the big, tough situations come, then it's a lot easier. It's harder to learn when we get in the tough, tough situations. So David expresses his confidence as we move through the process of shift, fo- focusing or shifting our focus from from the problem to the the power of God. Then we can express confidence in God that He will always, always. Just because I don't see it, just because it hap- it's going to happen in the future and eternity, it always will happen. God will always be on our side. He will always uh, deliver His people from those who treat them unjustly. And that justice will be neither now in time or in eternity. Now, the first section we covered last time, David appeals to God to rescue him from his enemies because he's innocent and has done no wrong. This is his prayer petition. In the next couple of verses, which we'll cover pretty quickly, he describes the wickedness of his enemies through a graphic picture, comparing them to wild, ravenous dogs who have absolutely no fear or discipline. And that's in verses 6 to 7. That's his lament. That is crying out, focusing on his problem. And then the third part in this opening section is when David expresses his trust. He looks at the wickedness of his enemies and contrasts that to the power of God, who is always the believer's strong tower. So last time... I'm going to run through the next 10 slides really quickly because just a review to put our heads back to where we had them last week. He opens telling us that this is set uh, set to a tune called Do Not Destroy, which the previous two hymns have been set to, some others are set to, and it indicates uh, that the music matches the theme of the hymn, which is Don't Destroy Me. And so that is, it's directed to the chief musician. This is the head of the musical choirs, the Levitical priest. Uh, Asaph was one of these, and there were, there were several others. The theme is that David, who is innocent and blameless, petitions the all-powerful, omnipotent God on the basis of his faithful covenant love to protect and preserve him from his evil, wicked enemies. That is what this is about. And so we can transfer that by application that God, because of his faithful, loyal love to us, is going to provide for us. He is going to take care of his people, whether we're Old Testament Jews, Jewish believers, or whether we're New Testament church-age believers, or even in the future, tribulation saints. So in this section, we looked at 
On the first five verses, how David appeals to God. This is a pattern for prayer, how David appeals to God to rescue him from his enemies because he's innocent and has done no wrong. We've seen that in this, there is an imprecatory prayer. That's a fancy word for he wants God to judge his enemies and slam them down. And I said that there is a place for that in our lives, that when we see true evil and wickedness, that uh, as we think we have seen politically, that we can pray that God would prevent those who have evil designs from being successful. And that can occur in any number of positive situations. It's not a personal revenge situation. It is keeping, it's for a broader uh, reason and, and rationale. Well, look at these first four verbs that we've talked about. There's four imperatives that David uses at the beginning. Uh, and these are imperatives of request. Some people, I remember a guy years ago, a student asked me, are they demanding God? See, that's the name it, claim it, uh, prosperity theology, that you can tell God what to do. No, that's a misunderstanding of imperatives. So the imperative mood can be an imperative of request. Uh, God, please do this, or let God do this, if it's in the uh, uh, third person uh, uh, type of a, uh, an imperative. So it's an imperative of petition, imperative of request, uh, rescue me, protect me, and then in the second verse, deliver me and save me. And so I didn't cover the word save much last time. It's the Hebrew word yasha, the verb yasha, which is the uh, verb uh, that is the basis for the noun uh, that is the name of Jesus, Yeshua. And it means to save or deliver. It doesn't always mean in a uh, salvific justification, redemption sense. It can be deliver me from you know, negative circumstances, delivered me from bad health, deliver me from uh, people who wish to do me harm. Uh, so it's used that way where these four terms are used in a way that uh, sort of expands and helps us understand what is going on here for David Praise to be delivered from his enemies who are called the doers of evil. They are said to be workers of iniquity and bloodthirsty. And so he is asking God by rescue and protect to give him safety and provide security, recognizing for all of us that we all need safety and security. Because as fallen human beings in a corrupt world, we are, people say, I just feel so unsafe. You know, that that's maybe the cry of a certain segment of our population that, that they don't know what the future is going to hold. That is a great tool to use in conversation to help them understand that nobody does. So where do we get the confidence to live life in an uncertain, insecure, scary world? Well, because we have God. God is our high tower. He is our defense. He is our protector. But we have to have a right relationship uh, with him. So David cries out and ultimately uses that word yasha to save. So we see that these terms rescue, protect, deliver, and save are all roughly synonymous. In verse 3, he uh, describes his enemy that they look and they lie in wait. They're trying to ambush him. And he says, but it's not for my transgression or for my sin. We saw there's about... Uh, at least three different words that are used for sin in this in this section. The next one is used in the next verse, verse 4. Um, Through no fault of mine or no iniquity of my own, David says. So he proclaims his innocence, calls upon God 
to be alert, to wake up, pay attention. Uh, this doesn't mean that God is asleep. It's simply a figure of speech for God to express the urgency of our request to God. And then he closed out that section, as I pointed out last time, by focusing on who God is. Get a big picture of God in your head. That God is the God of the armies. God is bigger than any problem, any person, any circumstance, any situation that we can ever face. And God knew about it from eternity past, and therefore God has made a provision for it. And he, he focuses on God as a Lord God of hosts, Lord God of the armies, the God of Israel. So he, he, he recognizes his own personal situation, that he is being surrounded by enemies, and that is analogous to the condition of Israel who's surrounded by the enemies of, uh, of the Gentiles, the Philistines and the others, and that it is God who is the only one who will protect him as the anointed king of Israel, and God is the only one who can protect uh, the nation. And then he concludes by saying, uh, do not be merciful or show grace. That's the imprecatory prayer. There are times we say, quit being gracious, Quit giving uh, that person, that politician, that uh, uh, organization power. Uh, take them down because they are uh, destroying believers. They prevent the opportunity to take the gospel to people. And God will do it in his time. Only he knows all the facts. So we have to rest and trust in him. So as I said in the introduction, we looked at this chiasm. We finished the first five verses, which expresses the basic prayer and petition. And now we're in that middle section, verses 6 through 10, which focuses our attention upon God. So in terms of the outline, we're adding this second point here, that in verses 6 through 7, David describes the wickedness of his enemies. And he uses this extremely graphic, graphic picture of these wild dogs who have no uh, no fear uh, whatsoever of, uh, of of people. They have no fear of people. They are constantly in a state of hunger, so they are uh, they are fearful, and and yet they constantly seek to attack in order to um, in order to satisfy their need, and that's what's going on here. So he is depicting the soldiers of Saul as this vicious, snarling pack of wild dogs. They're howling, growling in the night, scavenging, looking places for food, and they they run in packs. They believe that there's strength in numbers. And so in, in, there's an analogy here. He's saying just as the dogs go around scavenging for food, so these enemies of his are scavenging for se- secrets and got to gossip and to slander, and that he compares their words uh, to uh, razors that cut, sharp words that cut. And verse, uh, uh, let me read the two verses. At evening they return. They come out at night. That's when wild dogs come out. When I first went to Kiev back in 2001, uh, it was uh, interesting. I'd usually, at that time, um, I stayed with uh, uh, Jim Dumas in his apartment, and uh, that was about uh, equidistant on one side of the subway, the metro station from where Jim Myers lived. And often after teaching at night, I would go over to Jim's and we'd have hot chocolate and eat popcorn, talk theology until about 1130 or 12. And then I would walk back in fairly deserted streets 
walk back to the apartment. Now, there were a few people who were out, but there were some places that were a little deserted, and there were a lot of wild dogs. This was a big problem in 2000, 2001, 2002. You'd have packs of 20 or 30 wild dogs roaming the streets in many different places in Kiev. A couple of years after that, they um, had a major effort to round them off, round them up, and to uh, um, uh, to kill most of them, I guess, and and uh, get them off the streets. But there's still uh, at times you you run into smaller packs of wild dogs there, and so uh, that's what they were doing. They were just going around scavenging, and and uh, because they were traveling in packs, they didn't have any fear. Uh, there was strength in numbers, and so you needed to be watchful for these dogs and and uh, and not get not get in their way. A couple of years ago now, I think it was about three years ago, I was I left early in the morning to go to the gym to work out, and I walked down. There's one place where you go to the left. It's really icy. You could stay, and that was on a walkway. And the other Y went down the street, and they both sort of came back to the same meeting point. And I went that way, and there were about three junkyard dogs out in front of this uh, building that looked looked abandoned. And uh, so I walked across to the other side of the street, and they saw me, and they'd start come run, kind of running up and sniffing behind me. One guy was a little aggressive, and he'd come up and snap at me. And I had my backpack on, and I just slipped it down and carried it with my computer. I figured, well, you know, worst-case scenario, I'll sacrifice my Mac. But um, I would just kind of pop him, and, and one time he, he snapped and he grabbed my, my heel just briefly, and that's when I popped him a good one with the backpack. But, but you know, this is a scary situation because there's nobody around. It's, it's deserted. It was about 7.30 or 8 in the morning. And um, so that's this kind of situation. And that their words, see, David describes them, they growl like a dog and go all around the city. So they are... They're, they're out, they generate fear in people, and they belch with their mouth. He's describing the, the horrors uh, of the uh, lovely picture, isn't it? They belch with their mouths, and their uh, uh, swords are in their lips, talking about their, their slander, their gossip, their mal- the way they malign David. And, um, and so that's the picture there. So this is where David is uh, expressing... Uh, this is what his enemies are like. He's calling for God to deliver him from these enemies. Okay, so we come back to our little chart here, our outline. He describes these images. They have no fear. They're going around seeking to destroy him. And then in verses 8 through 10, he expresses his trust in God. And this is indicated in verse 8 where he has a contrast. But you, O Lord... The but indicates a contrast with the circumstances of these ravenous wild dogs. But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. Now, I might be scared. I might be worried. I don't know what the outcome is going to be if I got three or four wild dogs snapping in my heels. But God is knows what the outcome is, and God's able to handle the circumstances. But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. God, and then it goes on to say, you shall have all the nations in derision. You're going to make fun of them. And most people don't think of God that way. They think of God as sweet and benign. He's certainly not politically correct. And this picture of God is probably really going to unsettle a whole lot of the snowflakes because they just don't know how to handle 
this kind of a situation, anything that contradicts their views or anything that is harsh, anything that seems judgmental to them or critical, uh, they don't know how to handle because they live in these hermetically concealed uh, worldview boxes where nobody really really challenges them and they don't know how to to face the insecurities of that that uh, that little box that they're in but God laughs at the bad guys he holds them in derision he ridicules them now that doesn't mean that we should do that okay that's that's a temptation I've heard some pastors say see that we need to ridicule them. No, that's not the point here. God can because he's God. We can't because we're supposed to remember it's not about it's not about being right in the arguments. It's not about being right in the political discussions. As I said the other day, we're not called to be witnesses of the constitution. We're not called to be witnesses of the Republican Party. We're not called to be witnesses of conservatism. Now, none of those things are wrong, but we're called to be witnesses of the gospel. And we're not called to let politics or the Constitution or who we voted for get in the way of being a faithful witness of the cross of Christ. Paul said, I, can't, I determined to know nothing else among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I've been distressed the last uh, couple of days reading uh, stories and also seeing a few things on on Facebook. I saw somebody not too long ago who claimed to be a believer. I assume he is a believer, but he just got fed up. Then he posted something on his website and said, if you're a Democrat or voting for Hillary, just unfriend me now. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And you have these stories that are coming out about families that have disinvited family members. It's on both sides of the aisle. You have families that are liberal who found out somebody voted for Trump and they're disinviting them. And you have those who are Trump uh, supporters who voted, uh, who uh, have some people in their family who voted for Hillary and they're disinviting them. And this should not be characteristic of believers. We have to be in a situation in this country where we can have civil discourse. And if we are believers, the issue is not who you voted for. The issue is who you voted for in terms of 33 AD. The issue is the cross and Golgotha always. And so we can't let a political stance or our political interpretation or philosophy get in the way of being gracious and kind so that we have a platform at some point, maybe not now, now it might not be the right time, but at some point to be able to communicate the gospel to somebody. And if there's going to be any offense whatsoever, the offense need to be, needs to be the cross, not our politics. But God's a different story. See, God expresses this attitude in the prophecy of Psalm 2, where God is, the picture is at the end of the tribulation period as the armies of, of, of the, the nations, the kings of the earth at that time, gather together against the Lord. The Lord sits in the heavens, shall laugh at them. 
the Lord shall hold them in derision. And then Psalm thirty-seven, thirteen, as David also complains about uh, injustice, the Lord laughs at him for he sees that his day is coming. Sooner or later, that person who seems to be doing so well is going to not be doing so well. So this is the focal point uh, in verse 8, verses 6 through 8, talking about the wicked and God. And then we have the expression uh, uh, down in um, verses 9 and 10, talking about hoping in God. And here what we read in in verse 9 is I will wait for you. This is David's declaration of his his confidence again. He says, I will wait for you. And the Hebrew word here for wait is a word uh, shamar. And shamar is a word that refers to keeping or watching or preserving or guarding over something. It's the word that's used in Genesis chapter 2 when God tells Adam that he is to watch over the garden it's that idea of being a watchman on the tower it's the idea of being a guard protecting uh, something so it's waiting um, and with vigilance it's the idea of keeping vigilant here that would be the main idea that David is saying I'm going to keep watch I'm going to be vigilant to see how you're going to intervene and then he says oh you his strength now there is a a uh, difficult situation here uh, in the Hebrew, and I don't want to, I'll turn your heads inside out if I go through all of the details, but there are some uh, some textual issues uh, that come, uh, come to play here. Uh, one of the translations that has been suggested is this one on this slide in the upper right, power is his, and that interpretation was Uh, our power is his alone that was suggested by a rabbi a rabbinical scholar named Ibn Ezra in the middle ages and he took this as possibly a reference not to God's strength but to the strength of Saul which makes sense contextually that what David is saying is I will watch for you O God uh, power is his. Saul's the one who's anointed. He's the one in position and power. He's the one behind the enemies. And right now it seems like he's got the upper hand. That would be the idea uh, for that, uh, that, uh, that description. And it, it makes sense. Um, this was one of those days when I was sitting there and I was doing some studying and I read a, a reference to this because in Hebrew they have they have a, what is called a kathib kare. And we all, anybody who went to Dallas Seminary understands that term because we had a school weekly newspaper that was called the kathib kare. Kathib is the word meaning written. Kare is the word meaning read. And so what you have in the Hebrew text is there'll be a little bitty letter like an A, B, C, or D, and then out in the margin in about four-point type face is a word. And that word is what is to be read. Uh, the other word is what's written. And so there often gives a difference of interpretation because there was an ambiguity in the original uh, original Hebrew. And so there's, there's this question here as to whether this is referring to God as his strength 
or whether this is referring to uh, Saul as the one who is in um, uh, the one who's in control, because it's a third person uh, third person suffix. There, it's his strength. But the way most people read this is, "Oh, you, my strength." Okay, that he's. This is what uh, David says in reference to God. If you look down at verse. 17 he says to you o my strength now but that's not how it's written what is written in the passage is his strength well who's the his if david's talking about i will wait for you you would think that he would say you to god you're my strength that's why and then it reads o you his strength this is what causes uh this problem of interpretation there um so the idea uh, here, I think I lean towards, at least it seems possible, that this is talking about, I'm going to wait for you, God, because right now Saul's in power. I can't do anything about you, but you are uh, my defense, and I am going to wait for you to intervene. And that would be the idea. And he says that God is my strength here. This is the noun form uh, Mishkav, which means a high place or refuge, and that goes back to the word um, defend me in the verb in the first verse. Defend me. It means to literally to set me in a high tower. And so here it's saying God is my high tower. So it's an affirmation statement of concept. God's my defense. I don't need to worry about you. I don't need about what people say, what people do. I can be oblivious to it because God's going to take care of it. I'm going to cast all my care upon you because you care for me. Then in verse 10, he says, My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God will anticipate my need. That is the idea here. God will anticipate my need, and he will meet me in the midst of my uh, difficulty, in the midst of my adversity. My God, and he's described as the God of mercy and this is the word chesed, which refers to God's faithful, loyal love. It always takes us back to his covenant. Now, God had made a covenant with David yet, but he, he's referring to the faithfulness of God to his covenant with his people. And it's often translated, if you've got New American Standard, it translates it loving kindness. Uh, so it's talking about the, the God of love, the God, but it has to be understood. He's loyal to a covenant. Some people say, well, that's not very good. That's not very romantic. But remember, every time a person gets married, they are making vows. They're in, they get a marriage license. They are entering into a contract, and they are pledging to love each other in good times and bad, in prosperity and in health, whether the other person is grumpy or not. I've been thinking about adding some things to my marriage ceremony here. Um, that, you know, when you get senile, I still love you, you know, things like that. When you can't remember my name anymore and you call me by your old boyfriend's name, I'll still love you. You know, things like that just to lighten it up a little bit because people are, usually I've said this many times, when people come and they hear you and you go through through sickness, uh, what you know, through sickness or health, what they hear is and health. And you talk about uh, good times or bad, and they hear good times or 
They never hear the negatives. They just hear good times, prosperity, health, all of the positives. They never hear the negatives. And the negatives, sadly, are too often in our fallen world. So God is a God of mercy who meets us. And God will, at the end there, he closes this this uh, line with the triumphant note that God is going to let him look on his enemies in triumph. Now, David can say that because David is going to be anointed king. He knows the end game personally. You don't and I don't because God hasn't come down and said, guess what? I'm going to make you such and such. You're going to be president of the company in five years. You don't know that. Okay? So we can't apply some things uh, to our, our lives because we aren't in exactly the same situation. So this expresses our confidence. David expresses his confidence, his hope in God. And then we're going to go into the next section, which focuses more on his call for judgment, justice on God's part. That's the, um, no, that's not what I want. Back to this slide. There, the imprecation or curse that starts at the end of 10b and goes to 13 according to his outline. Okay. David, in the second part, David praises God because he's protected David and delivered him. It hasn't happened yet. But David's confidence is so certain that God is going to bring justice into the situation and protect him that David speaks of it as if it had already happened. Grammatically, these are often referred to as prophetic, uh, prophetic perfects. They are, grammatically, it's an event that's described in the, in the past, but it's referring to something in the future. It's so certain to occurring that it's going to happen in the future. So David then praises God because he protected David and delivered him, and he prays that God would discipline them in a way that will reveal God's sovereignty so that not only David's people, but also everybody in the world can learn a lesson that God is sovereign and he will bring about justice. So he expands on this cry to God to destroy his arrogant enemies in verses 11 to 13, but he doesn't ask for God to take their lives. And that's an important lesson because what David is doing is he recognizes that the punishment needs to fit the crime and they haven't killed anybody yet. And see, often when we want a little vengeance on somebody, they did, they did something the size of a piece of straw, and we want God to hit them with a two-by-four. Uh, so it's an eye, the principle of lex talionis, which is the law of retaliation, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that the crime punishment needs to be um, uh, compensatory to the, uh, the punishment needs to be compensatory to the crime. So, And then we'll see in verses 14 through 15 that David will reiterate his lament again, describing the wild dogs, very similar to what we saw already. And the conclusion, David vows to praise God for his omnipotence and loyal love. So what does he say? He says to them, do not slay them, lest my people forget. See, David thinks there's a lesson here. This, is, this has a teaching point. People need to learn from this situation. If you just kill them, they're not going to learn the point. Uh, they need to learn. They need to learn their lesson. So don't kill them. 
because then the people will forget. But if you stretch this out and you take them through a lot of difficult circumstances, then the people will see uh, see this lesson. So he then ups the ante a little bit. He says, scatter them by your power. And this is a Hebrew word, which means to shake them up. Okay? And it means to uh, bring them down. And in a sense, it's going to make them totter, put them off balance, and then and bring them down. So there's a progression here. The term scatter means shake them up, knock them off balance, and then bring them down, then knock, knock them down. But not that you're going to kill them. The, the verb for bringing them down means to bring down, to take down, and in context it means to destroy, to wipe out their power base. Uh, and I think that that in this, David is understanding... Um, you know, some, some basic principles of Proverbs. But one last thing here, he refers to the Lord. He, he doesn't use the term Yahweh here. He shifts to Adonai, and he says Adonai is our shield. So he's a strong tower. He delivers us, and now he's a shield. So you have these two very vivid images of God's protection as a strong tower and as a shield. And the word for shield is Magan. You may hear of... Um, there's a wine called Mogan David. Mogan is a variant of Mogan, uh, you know, the shield of David. So uh, that is what that, that, where that comes from. But what we see here is that J- David is seeking justice, but in grace orientation, he understands that the crime needs to, f- uh, the penalty needs to fit the crime. There, he seeks justice in correspondence to the crime. And David recognizes that God is the one who ultimately protects, defends, and saves. It's, it's, there are things that we can do. For example, uh, Jess is going to talk after the meeting on terrorism. There are certain things that we can do to protect our houses. Jeff has a whole, Jess also has a whole line of things he can talk about how you can protect your house. You lock your doors. You can uh, change the kind of screws in your in your door facing so that it's not it's harder to kick the door in. You can do a lot of things like that. But the person who protects my house is not me. I turn on the security alarm. I do all these other things that I can be responsible for, but I don't trust in them. I trust in the Lord. The Lord is the one who defends the house. He defends my property because I've given everything over to the Lord, and the Lord's going to protect it and provide for it and, and take care of it. And that's how David is. He recognizes that his life is the Lord's life to do with as God will, not as he will, and that God will protect and defend and save him. And David recognizes the principle. This is what he's applying to his enemies. So, Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Remember Solomon wrote this? And I think that a lot of the Proverbs were what David, his father, taught him. And so one of the Proverbs is, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Well, David says, these guys are proud and arrogant. They need to be taken down, Lord. You need to um, let them fall. Verse 12, he reiterates this sin of uh, the sin of the tongue. The sin of their mouth, the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride. Uh, Let them collapse. Pride goes before a fall. And for the cursing and lying which uh, which they speak. 
And then he concludes this by saying in verse 13, consume them in wrath. Consume them. This is that imprecatory part. It's mirroring what we've seen earlier. Consume them in wrath. Consume them. Twice he states that. And that's the Hebrew word uh, kalah, which is in a PL stem, which means it's intensive. And it has that idea of cause them to perish, exterminate them, finish them, bring them to bring this whole situation to an end, consume them in wrath. And I've used this term many times. Wrath is a term for justice. It is not a term for losing your temper and and taking them out and, and abusing them. It is a term for justice. And we often use this even in English. We'll, we'll say, well, the judge threw the book at him. Well, we none of us want a judge who is emotional and who gets upset and throws things at the criminal. It is merely an expression that says that they were somebody was judged by and punished to the fullest extent of the law, hopefully by an unemotional uh, objective judge who understands the truth. Wrath is simply an anthropopathic term to express the justice of God. Consume them in wrath, consume them that they may not be, and let them, and, and we know that that doesn't mean that he kills them because earlier the, David prays, don't slay them. It means that they're taken out in their position, their positions of influence and power are wiped out. And then he ends by saying, and let them know that God rules in Jacob, a term for Israel. God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. So earlier, when he was talking about this, he talked about, uh, in verse um, verse 11, do not slay them lest my people forget. Now he expands it from just the people of Israel. Now he says that all of the ends of the earth will understand. Let God rule over all uh, on the earth. So this is a lesson that even Gentiles should learn. So he's taking it to a higher level. It reminds us of, notice it ends, there's a break in the Hebrew text. Uh, Let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah, pause. Takes us back to the previous Selah at the end of verse 5. You therefore, O Lord God of hosts, O God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to the wicked transgressors. So you have this this call for justice, this imprecation in both places, in 5 and in 13. And then, so just by way of review, this as we go through this praise section, which is where it ends, in uh, 2b, in verses 14 through 15, he reiterates his lament on these insatiable evil enemies, and that's... Uh, he goes back to that imagery of the, the wild dogs. And at evening, they return. They keep coming back. They're always after me. They growl like a dog and go all around the city. And they wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. Their appetite for destruction is insatiable. And so David then uh, comes to the high point, the conclusion. In the last part, which I've articulated this way in Uh, the last section, the last two verses. David then vows to praise God for his omnipotence, his loyal love. What's interesting is in a lot of Psalms, you start with a vow, and then where do you go? What week is this? 
Come on. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. What you get in Thanksgiving Psalms is the development of the vow to give thanks to God in the temple. And that's where Thanksgiving Psalms come from. They're an extension. You know, the lament has been expressed, and then there's thanksgiving and declarative praise to God for what he has done. But in the lament Psalms, often it just stops with the praise. And it says, I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy, your chesed, your faithful, loyal love in the morning. For you have been my... I'm convinced David was a morning person because he always talks about getting up and praising God in the morning, reading the scripture in the morning and all that. That doesn't mean, you you know, if you're not a morning person that you're carnal. Maybe a little. Um, But David was definitely a morning person. He's always getting up early. I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength. Now, I underline strength here and the word power because, as I point out in the two language boxes at the bottom, the first word is one form of the word oz, which means might or power. There is a, a homophone, O's, which is a second word. That in the dictionary, that you have O's 1 and O's 2, and the second one is refuge. So Psalm fifty nine seventeen should read, To you, O my refuge. They understand that uh, further studies in, in um, uh, Hebrew indicate that these are two distinct words with two distinct meanings. So he's talking about God here, To you, O my, o my uh, refuge. I will sing praises, for God is my defense and my my God of mercy. So just quickly here, as we wrap up, uh, when he says God is a God of mercy, that takes us back to chesed. So God is our defense because of his faithful, loyal love. He's loyal to his promises to us, to his covenant uh, to us. And then uh, we read here, it says that... Um, for you have been my defense, uh, O God. This is the word uh, mishgav. Okay, and then down here it says, for God it's my defense. That's the word mishgav. That's the noun form of the verb he used in the second part of verse 1 to defend me. Okay, same, uh, same concept. You are my high place, my refuge. And then in the middle, he is his refuge here, my monos. So he pl- uses these word plays. I mean, you could spend hours just looking at, at, at the intricate verbal structures in these psalms and how they are used to bring out different facets of God's character and to get the attention of the reader to focus on God as the one who is our strength. And the emphasis ultimately is that God is a God of mercy and that he is merciful to his people and he will rescue and deliver them either now or in eternity. His justice is certain and secure either now or in eternity. And we need to rest in the sovereignty of God, the omnipotence of God. Notice how many times in the Psalms it always drives us back to the character of God. This is why I've said many, many times, go to the Psalms, look at what how David looks at a problem such and such, so and so, this and that, that's the problem. Let's think about how it relates to the character of God. Sovereignty, justice, righteousness, love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, veracity, immutability, 
Think about those attributes and structure your prayers in light of those attributes. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, be reminded that when we are faced in horrible situations where our security is threatened, our lives are threatened, we don't know what we're going to do to survive, we don't know how we're going to survive, that we can turn to you and trust in you, and that no matter what happens in this life, we know that ultimately justice will prevail because you are a God who is faithful and loyal to his people. And our responsibility is to trust in you. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the message of this psalm and to trust you just as David did through not only the, the five attempts on his life that we studied up to this point in 1 Samuel 19, but also all the subsequent ones. And he continued to do what was right despite the fact that, that Saul was trying to kill him. He continued to treat uh, Saul with grace and kindness, continued to be humble even though... Uh, one day Saul would be his friend, the next day Saul would be throwing spears at him. Father, we pray that we'd be challenged by these truths in Christ's name. Amen.